Thank you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. And so as we look into this last lesson, you know, this was fairly new to me when I, when I first got exposed to um, how do we as parents change? You know, I never realized, I mean, I, you know you're doing it, but as your kids grow, and so, okay, well, let me ask you this. How many of you have kids below the age of five? Okay, and how many of you have kids like in elementary, middle school? How many of you have kids in high school? How many of you have kids in different, in those different ages, five and 11 and 15? Multiple. Multiple, yeah. So it's like you're always wearing a different hat, right? And, and, and the thing is, we do have to change as our children change. The thing is that gets us into trouble is we don't change. We just think our kid's growing up, but we're not changing. We're not changing our method of relating to them. We're not changing the amount of discipline or the structure. We just think we're going to be the same and they're going to grow up. You cannot be a dictator to a 12-year-old. You're going to lose them. You try to be a dictator at, when they're 12 years old, telling them what to do, when to do it, how to do it, you're going to lose them. And we're going to talk about who, who do we become at what age. So um, as you look at this, uh, the, the, the fourth lesson, you'll notice that uh, you have this um, chart. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that. But as we go into this, we're going to be looking at redefining your role as a parent, contemporary challenges we face as parents and ways to rise above those challenges. And if, you know, you can look back 20 years ago, some of you, uh, and know that some of the things we deal with today, our parents didn't deal with. You know, uh, we were um, watching the final countdown and results of the presidential election, you know, on, on uh, the laptop. And Nicole goes, you know what? 20 years ago, none of us would have had a front row seat. You know, it's true, we have a front row seat watching this, right? And she said, because we have these gadgets. You know, um, how many of you knew that Franklin Roosevelt, was it Franklin Roosevelt that was in a wheelchair? And the, the rest of the nation didn't know it. They didn't have TV at the time, that their president was in a wheelchair. They didn't know that. But now media is right there, we know everything, right? And so. There's so much coming through social media. There's so many other challenges that we didn't have, and we want to talk about that. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about what it means to redefine your role as a parent. And so when a child is zero to two, your role is that you are a dictator. Some of you love that. <laughs> and you have 100% control. You tell them you have absolute control and you have the power to tell them how, when to eat, sleep, what to wear, all of that, right? Where and to lay down. Where to lay down. I mean, you are in control. And they have zero control. And they also have uh, zero moral um, maturity at that point. They just want to know, they just want to eat, sleep, and, you know, be loved, eat, eat hugged. Yeah. But when there's two to five, you are now a controller. And you're losing a little bit of control, 
And this is where you're giving them choices. This is where the two-year-old is saying no, the three-year-old has some preferences. And a controller is a person who regulates, directs, or restrains the child. Again, a person who regulates, directs, or restrains the child and steers them in the right direction. So, you know, a two-year-old's going down, uh, maybe going out these double doors, and we run up there and we kind of direct them. They want to walk, but we're like, okay, you go up this way, you walk that way, you know. So we're doing some controlling of what's happening, but we're not dictators at that point. When they reach the age of five to eight, you now become a director. And you have about 80% control. Now, a director, oh, I just lost my spot, hold on. Have you ever been in, um, or have you ever seen like a choir and then you've got the director there? Okay, so in that case, a director who, who supervises all the elements, such as on a stage, the acting and the lighting, and is required to know what's going on all the time and kind of directing people on the stage, correct? So in this situation, we look at the child's life and all that is going on, and we direct those events. All right, they're getting involved in some things. You know, maybe they got involved in piano at seven years old, or they want to go here or go there. And so you are directing what's happening. You're still facilitating all that, but you don't have as much control. And you, you're starting to give up a little more as, as they get older. We become, at that stage, we become aware of everything that's going on in the child's life. I remember uh, when the kids were younger, you know, it's usually five years old when they go to school, right? And we were trying to choose a school, and I, we went to this one school, and they said, uh, I really, we really liked it, but they said, you know, you cannot go to your child's classroom. Uh, and I was like, what? Like, I can never go into my child's classroom and see who their classmates are and what the environment is. You know, we couldn't go there. It was in a private school. And I was like, I don't think so. I need to know, who, you know, who's in the classroom, and I need to know uh, who's sitting to, next to my kid and what's going on. And so I wasn't able to feel like I could get in there and see everything that was going on. And I would just say, you know, at that age, you want to know who are their friends, who are, who's playing with them on the, uh, on the playground, and so you're, you're, this is where your antennas are up and you're seeing everything that's going on and directing them. By the way, I think I should share this. You know, many times I have um, counseled people, adults, who were inappropriately touched between the ages of five and eight. And it was at that point when they would share the story with me that mom and dad were not around. They were not aware of everything that was going on in the child's life. You know, it was at a party and parents were not there or, you know, they did, they, the, the child went down to, you know, the next door neighbors and they, they weren't there. They weren't directing. They weren't aware of everything that was going on. And so it's important to, uh, at, that, at this point, is to really be on top of where your kids are at and what they're doing. Eight to 12, there's a lot of teaching that goes on and you become an instructor. And you have about 70% control. A person who instructs is the teacher giving information about life. This is where you're speaking to them a lot about life. A lot of time is spent in teaching them life concepts, you know, how you treat people, um, how you talk to authority, 
Um, so you're teaching them. And they haven't had a chance to practice it, but you're teaching them. And it's 14 to 16 where you now become, I mean, sorry, 12 to 14 where you are in uh, lots of training now. You're an informer. A person who informs or communicates information or news, you're an informant. So they're still not doing a lot of practicing, there, although there's some training. Now, if you think about, I mean, Lois, you've got your own gym. And so when you're a trainer, the trainer's right there, and, he's, and he's, he's right there in front of you, and he's teaching you, you know, how to lift the weights, how to do it correctly, but he's not doing it for you, but he's teaching you, but he's right there. And so he's watching, and that's where we need to be, right there. Uh, you know, where are, where are our kids, you know, in terms of their friends, and uh, when they're at a party, where are they, and what are they doing, and what are they involved in? And uh, so, so they're right there, but you're teaching, you're training them, but you're not doing it for them. Does that make sense? But in the next season of their life, when they are uh, 14 to 16, you now become a guide. And this is where a lot of coaching happens. So Im imagine that you are a coach of a basketball team. You've trained them. You've taught them how to do it. And then you send them out in the court. So we send them out in life to practice what we have been training them. And then they come back, and you talk a little bit more, and you send them back out to do life. Does that make sense? Now you're not right there, but you are teaching them and sending them out to practice it. Okay, so... Just a quick story. Yeah. When our daughter was 16 years old, I felt like the Lord led me to uh, do a special dinner for her, which uh, amounted to something like a rite of passage into adulthood. And I didn't act on it right away, but for months, the Lord kept telling me, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And so after about three months, I thought, man, this is not going away, I better do it. And so we reserved uh, Santa Fe on the Bay, sunset on the beach, dinner, invited her best friend. And I said that this dinner is a special time to commemorate mom and dad are now recognizing you as an adult. And I explained along with that come certain responsibilities and certain privileges. And her best friend leaned over and said, so what are the privileges? <laughs> you know? She wanted the car. <laughs> <laughs> the car key. <laughs> and so we, we did that. And a year later, I looked back on it, and I realized God did not do that for my daughter. God had me do that for Terry and I to treat her differently. That was for us. Yeah. He was teaching us to change Nicole our later. role. Yeah, we also did that with Nicole, and um, we noticed a significant difference after we did that with her as well, that she just began to flourish, and because we recognized her and responded to her differently. By the time they're 16 to 18, this is a stage where you become a negotiator, and some of you know that, right? <laughs> Mom, can I stay out till 10? No, you know, no, nine. No, how about, you know, so there's a negotiation that's going on, right? To negotiate is to deal or bargain with another, to find a treaty, right? To find a middle ground and to arrange to bring a settlement to matters. And this is a very important stage, although throughout their life, the middle, uh, usually by 12, 13, 14 and on, but this is where you really see them, uh, where they're going through a, a phase called individuation and internalization. Now, internalization is the, our kids are beginning to ask themselves, do I really believe what mom and dad have been telling me? Do I really, do I make those my values? And individuating means that they're becoming their own person. 
And, and they'll do things that'll kind of be weird to us, and we'll think, why are they doing that? The way they dress, the music they listen to, you know, the TV uh, shows that they watch, and we could get all kind of bent out of shape. But we just let them individuate, knowing that we've set boundaries. This is a safe place to make your mistakes or to become who you want to be. And, and we give them that freedom to individuate. You know, our, <clears throat> we've been pastors forever, and our daughter came home from Portland, and uh, she said, you know, Mom and Dad, I'm, I'm probably not going to go to Life in the Sun. What? <laughs> We're pastors, and you're not going to our church? No, we did not do that. We're like, okay, you know, where do you want to go? And she's like, well, I just want to check out some other churches. And my brother goes to Christ Bible Fellowship at the time, and he said, Tara walked in, and he was like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, Uncle Tony, I just want to see what you guys do at your church. And we gave her that freedom to individuate from us. And she had to be who she is. And, you know, eventually she came back. But, you know, if we forced her to stay and said, you know, you have to come to our church. I mean, we're pastors, and what are people going to think? All that kind of stuff. You know, it's not going to happen. And when she was in uh, her... If, if I should interject. Part of the dynamic that goes on in the relationship when they're individuating, they've always identified themselves with you as their parent. And when they're individuating, uh, if they do a behavior and you say, absolutely not, you cannot, it's like drawing a line in the sand. You have to stay on this side of the line, which is our family, which is me. If you do that, if you draw the line in the sand, the only way they can individuate is to step on the other side of the line because that's the only side that's different from you. And so you can actually have a reverse effect where you force them to rebel if you draw a line in the sand. Mm -hmm. So for example, a child comes home drunk. You know, you could get all in their face. (laughs) How dare you disrespect our household and our rules? You will never do that again. If I ever catch you, and on and on, right? Well, what's that gonna do if they're individuating? You know, in our house, the rule is you can't drink. And so if I want to be me, I got to be something else, which is drinking. The better way, a wiser way to handle that is you just let nature take its course and let life teach its own lessons. They go through a hangout. Uh, they go through a hangover. They wake up in the morning. They got a headache. They feel, ter- they feel terrible. And you come to them and say, did you learn something from that? <laughs> Yeah, Dad, I'm never going to do that again. God, what was I thinking? And you're like, bingo. And so, you know, individuating can be a scary time for parents, but it can also be such a rewarding time for them to find out, you know, who they are. You know? if, if you've done it right and they feel safe in the relationship, yeah. you'll get a call at 3 in the morning. I know. I tell you, I, when I partied, I never called my parents. <laughs> Mark goes, Wow. Who calls their parents and tell them that, you know, they're not feeling well because they had tequila? And I, I said, not me. He goes, not me either. But th- I have a point that I'll make at the end and the reason why she did call us. Okay, when you're 18 plus, um, you become a facilitator. And you have about 30% control. A, person, a facilitator is a person who's responsible to lead or coordinate. So, you know, usually it's at this time where they're trying to figure out which college to go to. They're out of high school. They're trying to decide that. And you're facilitating the process, but you're not actually making the decision. You know, you're just kind of helping them facilitate 
uh, find out what the possibilities are out there. You know, what do I need to do to help you uh, to get to get to college or whatever it is? Or they might run by you some ideas. Oh, I don't want to go to college. I want to work. Okay, and you kind of just facilitate that. You don't direct them and say, "This is where you you should. This is what you should do." Because I remember I shared that story earlier. Some of her friends could not go to the University of Portland, Nicole's friends, unless they majored in what their parents wanted. And you know, that, that, uh, that does not do it. They will actually be very unhappy. The next, the last one is when, I mean, when they're, pre, they're not married, but they're over 18, you are an advisor. And you have 20% control, and an advisor meaning, wait till they ask you. You don't call them up and say, here's my advice. Here's my advice. No, you wait. And if they ask you, mom and dad, what do you think? Then you offer it. You know when, um, oh, I remember Tara liked this guy in, in, in at the University of Portland. And she called her dad. And she's like, dad, do you think it would be OK if I made cupcakes and took it over? <laughs> and I, I was like, wow. You know, just. Do you think, Dad, that's right? And then Nicole, you know, she would call. There was this guy that liked her, and she was like, uh, is it okay? Do you think that I can go to the dance just by ourselves? Or, you know, we're just friends. I don't know. And they would call Mark, and they would ask. And I, would, I, I knew that if something was going on, they're, they're going to call their dad. They're going to ask advice. Um, when they're married and beyond, how many, of a, how many of you have married children? No one yet. Okay. But when they get married, you become a supporter and a friend. And it's at this point you do not have any control. They've become their own family. A person who supports is someone who backs them up, a person who's an advocate. Um, it's not hostile. You know, you're a friend. We have to change as our children change. And this is the point of, that I want to bring out. The way we can have influence is to have a relationship with our children. Next one. What is the goal is to build a relationship because rules minus relationship, you'll have rebellion on your hand. Rules plus rela relationship is they'll respond. This is what was going on is because they had relationship with Mark and myself, they could call us. And they could call us and we could set rules or we could give advice and they would have a response. And so as our children mature, we lead by the strength of our relationship. The goal is develop relationship with them. And then you can speak into their life. Then they're going to seek you out for advice. They're going to ask you for counsel. And so it's so important that the, it's the relationship part. And that's always the one that takes a long time to build relationship. But that's how you would lead. So we're going to look at some of the other challenges and oh, oh, sorry. the first one is, and we, someone talked about it, what are the challenges we face? Well, we ch we're going to talk about reformatting the techno child. We talked about technology. Refocusing the image child. You know, our kids deal with low self-image, or there, there's a lot of comparison now, whereas, uh, you know, that's another thing. Nicole said, you know, Mom, when we didn't have all this, we didn't know what the other side of the world was wearing. We didn't know about fashion, right? I mean, we didn't know that. And so we, we felt like we were okay. But now we get on there and we're, oh, that's the latest fashion. And so that can really play on our image. 
the other day I was in Kmart and there was this girl wearing baggy pants, <laughs> tennis shoes, and a hat backwards. Looked like somebody from LA inner city. And I got a little closer and I could hear their language and she was speaking Japanese. <laughs> yeah, very different. We're also going to talk about relaxing the hurried child. You know, many of our kids are so busy performing and striving and don't know how to rest or enter into that rest. We have many kids who are broken, so we're going to talk about rebuilding the broken child and finally restoring the rebellious child. So let's go to the first one. The first one is reformatting the techno child. Don't wait until the, te the teen years when you start addressing technology and setting some rules in your home. When you be, you know, technology and having these devices are good, are a good thing if used properly and, uh, and, you know, at the right time. And so, don't wait and think, oh man, now we gotta put some restrictions. Do it early. Kind of set the rules down as to when can we use this and how long and what and for what purpose. You know, you have to get on there to get some information for homework. Um, you know, let's not have it at the dinner table. Nobody can turn on their phone at the dinner table. Um, whatever it might be, but set those boundaries early in your home. I know one household where the father shuts off the Wi-Fi at 10 p.m. Yeah. Don't use technology as a babysitter. How many of you have seen little kids, uh, they sit down at dinner and the parent hands them the phone, like, just keep quiet, use that, and... So I can talk. No, you know, I see that a lot. And so don't use technology as a babysitter. Can you? The next one is put your computer in a central location. When the kids were growing up, we had it in our living room so everyone could see what everyone was looking at. You know, that was back in the day of desktops. You know, we're in a different era now with devices in the palm of your hand. Um, so something else that would be a deterrent uh, there is an app called Porn Blocker. You can put that on your phone, and that'll block it. But, you know, being aware of where, where they're using the computer and what's on there really helps to keep them accountable and to, to keep it clean. The next one is to predetermine your family standards and explain them. What is our standard when it comes to the use of the phones or the computers, you know, what set a standard. Um, and they need to know the reasons behind, behind it. You know, one of the things was uh, one of our daughters, she was having a hard time sleeping and didn't get good night's rest. And actually, we, we took her to the doctor because she was experiencing some other things. And the doctor said, do you shut down your computer two hours before you're ready to sleep? Because he explained just the lighting that's coming from the computer, from the laptop, can make it very hard to sleep. And so we just came up with, why don't you shut it down at 8 o'clock so that you can be asleep by 10 and get enough rest. And so just needing to have a good reason rather than just saying because I said so doesn't cut it. We have to give them reasons. Also, provide alternatives. You know, I talked about this. Let your home be the party place. And, and let there be other things you do besides go to the movies, you know, go out, get out to the beach as a family, um, provide other alternatives than rather, rather than using the computer. 
You know, when we want to do something as a family, we try not to go to a movie because, to be very honest, we don't talk in a movie. You know, we're still not connecting. So we, we try to do something that uh, allows us to connect. You know, let your, let your home be the party place where there's fun, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you don't necessarily have to use technology. Sometimes, I love it when Tara gets home because Tara is very creative and she'll say, let's play games. And so we have board games, you know, and we'll do board games or let's bake cookies or something. Let's do something to get away from technology. The next one is refocusing the image child. And because there is such a, um, a focus on comparison, it can be a real killer. And so, first of all, affirm the worth and importance of your child. A lot of that can be done verbally. You know, um, kids, you know, you're wondering, man, I raised my child to feel good about themselves. They go to high school and they're like, what, why do they come home and they don't feel good about who they are? And it could be the influence there. And so you have to constantly affirm their worth, constantly affirm the importance of their importance. You know, it, it doesn't matter, you know, about someone else. You know, you are important. You have a purpose. You know, we love you. That kind of affirmation. The se secondly, model uh, treatment of other people, impeccable treatment of other people, because when you do that, what you're saying to your child is, that person has worth, and they see you treating people like that. Um, you know, one thing that I've appreciated about Tara is that she doesn't judge, and she might see a homeless person on the street, and she began to explain to me, because she, her major is social work, she began to explain to me really the lifestyle of someone who's homeless and how they feel and what they're really going through. And, and she would treat them so well. I would watch her. Like we, when I would be in Portland, she would go to this one store and uh, she'd walk in and then she'd buy something, she'd come out and there's a lady sitting there, this lady's always sitting there, and she would buy that lady something to eat and then give her the, whatever leftover change she had. And I was like, Tara, she's oh, I do that all the time. You know, I, like, I do that all the time to say, you know, I'm not going to pass you and ignore you. You know, I'm going to take note of you. You're right there. Um, and so she really models amazing treatment of people, no matter what stage of life they're in. And uh, so the next thing is also discuss the, da the dangers of comparing. Um, comparison is a killer. You know, and I really feel bad for, for kids when they're like, man, they have nicer clothes or they are smarter or they, you know, and that's why we have to really afford, affirm their worth because the world is saying, compare yourself to me, you know? I mean, they see uh, pictures of, uh, let's say it's uh, a young girl and man, this woman, she has all of this. They don't realize that that whole picture went through a bunch of editing, you know, and you know, the perfect body, the perfect boyfriend, the perfect this, the perfect job, and, we, and they begin to feel worse and worse about themselves when they're, when they're comparing. What you want them to do is you want them to rest, help them to rest in simply doing their best. You know, when Mark shared about when Nicole was in middle school and they lost every basketball game, well, that's not the whole story. Then she joined soccer and they lost every soccer game. So then she thought, let me join volleyball, and they lost every volleyball game. So you can imagine what the year looked like, right? So she said, let me try rugby. And each time that she lost a game, and she's just like, she was one of the better players, and so it wasn't like, you know, she's like, man, you know what about the team? You know, they never do their part. And, 
And we would just always communicate to her, Nicole, did you do your best? Did you do your best? And that's what is important, that you did your best. And so that's, um, it helped them to simply rest in that I did my best, you know, in, in whatever they pursue. And so we want to look a little bit about what is world, the world's view and what is God's view. The world's view says outward appearance is paramount. It's important. God looks at the heart. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I have seen beautiful, amazingly beautiful women who felt bad about who they, how they looked. So it's not about how you look. It's about what's inside. And then I might see someone who's just kind of average, not really stands out, and their heart is amazing, and you just want to be around them. And you know that when you're around them, they feel beautiful, and you feel beautiful. There's just something. Have you ever met people like that? And it was just like, wow, you know, there's something deep inside. And so God is looking at the heart. The second one is that beauty is external, but uh, in the world and in, uh, in the kingdom of God, heaven, I mean, beauty is internal. And it's what, who is the woman that's inside? Who is the man inside? And how are they developing? In the world's view, worth is tied to image. But in God's view, worth is tied to God and his image, who he says we are. And in the world, it's tied to what the world says is important. And finally, in the world's view, the goal is to please people. But in heaven's view, the goal is to please God. And those are the areas that need to be developed as we look at the image of a child. We want to help them grow in that area. And some of us need to grow in that area, too. I mean, some, we as parents need to grow in recognizing that God looks at our heart, that he says we're worthy. And, that he, and our goal is to please him. And so that's refocusing on the image child. The next one is relaxing the hurried child. <clears throat> you know, um, we as parents sometimes, as Mark shared, we try to live our life and our dreams through our children. And so sometimes we put on them undue pressure, you know, to perform to be an A student, to, you know, get on honor roll. And that can really cause a child to strive and, and to be hurried and not to learn how to just rest. And so we also have to examine ourselves. But just relaxing the child who's constantly busy, the first one is to guard your child's freedom to be a child. Teach them to enjoy the present moments. You know, Nicole came back, uh, and she's working on grad school applications. But in the middle of all that, as she's thinking about, okay, what grad school am I going to go to, and what am I going to major in, we've been encouraging her, Nicole, just enjoy life. While you're trying to figure that out, God has you on Guam for a while, just enjoy it. Enjoy the process of preparing to go to grad school. And so we, we need to guard their, guard their, help them to guard their freedom to be a child. And... Also, unscheduled time needs to exist and be enjoyed. Not everything needs to be filled in. You know, maybe Thursday we don't do anything. We stay home. It's okay. We don't have to fill in that slot. You know, maybe this season you're not going to join basketball. And let's just spend some time together. I mean, I would not... Okay, so I'm going to... I'll... Uh, I've repented, so now I'm going to share a confession. <laughs> My kids will, will tell you, when they were in uh, maybe middle school or high school, I would show up at the school. 
And I would sign them out. And I would say, that's cool. And we'd get in the car and I'd take them to a movie. And we'd just sit there and they're like, why mom? I'm like, you know what? I just miss you guys. I haven't had a chance. And let's just go and hang out. You know, and it was so funny because uh, they would be you like... You repented? I did repent. I thought that was a good thing. Oh, well, it was a good thing, but, you know, taking the kids out of school, teaching them, well, they still graduated, so it's good. <laughs> but, you know, there would be times I'd like, you know, I think when I dropped Nicole, she wasn't in a good mood, and she remembers this. She said, Mom, I remember you came and picked me up. She was like a sophomore, and I had bought her... Uh, two gifts, and I took her out to lunch, and she said, I remember that day. She said, I was not doing well, and you picked me up from school, you took me out to lunch, and you gave me some gifts. Uh, it was a Bible that she had wanted and something else, and she said, she remembered how much that meant to her, that I recognized that, Nicole, I need to take you out of that whole thing right now from school so that you can get away and just be still, because she wasn't doing well that day, and so we need to uh, make sure that we're not scheduling our kids to keep on going, going, going. If they say, I don't want to go, maybe we should respect that and just say, and make sure that uh, establish busyness parameters for your family. Model how to actually take a Sabbath. We ask our kids, are you taking a Sabbath? Are you taking a day of rest? I actually sent an email to Tara just recently. I said, Tara, I feel like you're so busy. Are you taking a Sabbath, you know? Just making sure that we do rest at home. And, and you know, a Sabbath could be you just don't do anything, but you just are at least resting and teaching your kids how to rest. The next one is rebuilding the broken child. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes we do everything right, and then the world just kind of crashes down on our kids, you know? and there's a brokenness. But sometimes it's from just ourselves, and it's, it's, sometimes it's the pressure of the outside, but sometimes there's emotional brokenness, and it's so hard to see our kids go through that. But some of the things you can, to, can do is continually reaffirm your unconditional love. You know, the world is conditional, but we can say, in this place, when you come home, there's unconditional love. You don't have to perform. You don't have to be someone you should be. Um, I remember when Nicole was going through a hard time in her sophomore year and was really down. And I didn't know, really, I didn't do very well in being able to minister to her, but Mark did. And all Mark did was just went, would go into her room and sit by her bed every day. And he wouldn't say anything, but she knew she was loved. And he would just wait until she was ready to talk about some of the things that she was going through. But what he was doing with his presence, sometimes with his word, is you're unconditionally loved here. And I think, I really believe that was one of the things that brought her out of that time in her life. The other thing to consider is address specific issues and events clearly. Sometimes it's, it's hard to determine what's going on and so sometimes you need to ask and find out what's going on. Work through forgiveness of offending parties, warn against bitterness. You know, it's a good thing that we knew a lot about inner healing because when our kids were going through stuff, we could say to them, would you be willing to forgive that person? And wa walking them through not being bitter. Commit to talk through issues over time and provide encouragement to fight on, not to give up. And they will eventually come out of that. 
when uh, Nicole was in a sophomore, we all moved to the States to go to Elijah House, and she agreed that she would go. What we did not know was that she was in, well, we knew she was in a school of 4,000 kids, and she came from a school with 350 all her life, and she went to the school that was one of the top schools in the area, and she was one of three brown people. And it was hard. And we didn't know that. She wouldn't tell us. She just kind of stuck it through. But that damaged her. And I remember when we were done with Elijah House, we said, Nicole, uh, you could stay here, and we could finish up your senior here. And she's, and she's like, I want to go home. So we like, we're going home. And God even told us to go home. And when we got to St. Paul's, where she originally came from, the whole sophomore class was in the um, office waiting for her. Nicole's coming back, because we came in the middle of the year. But she had already been so damaged by that situation because people were not friendly to her. And of course, you're one of three brown people, so what do you think, right? So, it's, so she was already so damaged. It didn't matter that the, her whole class wanted her here and they were, they were encouraging. And so she went through a very difficult time, and that really affected her for a couple years. And so when she was going to go to school at the University of Portland, the first thing I thought was, oh, no, she had a bad experience in that culture. Now what's going to happen? I mean, she's going to be there with all these white people again, and what's going to happen? It's unresolved in her heart. And But we just continued to affirm her. We believed in her, and... We just kept praying for her, and interesting, we would talk through. So once in a while, she would bring it up that that was a really hard time, Mom, when we were in the States. That's what, you know, and she didn't tell us how hard it was until we finally found out. And, uh, but, as we continued to encourage her to just keep going, actually, finally, but I think it was in her junior year, she took a class, and the class was on... Um, what was it about culture, uh, multicultural or just adjusting to culture. And all of a sudden the lights went on in her, in her mind and in her heart and she realized that's what I went through three years ago or four years ago. Culture shock. Culture shock. And she said she would come out of the class and she'd start crying, like just un sometimes uncontrollably. And she would be walking down to uh, the coffee shop where Tara worked and Tara would say, what's... Wh but what's going on? What's going on? And she'd say, I don't know. Just all of a sudden, there was understanding. And there was also healing. Because we asked her, would you be willing to forgive those people who were not nice to you? And I even asked her, would you forgive me? Because I was the one that really wanted to go to Elijah House. And she agreed that we would go. But at the same time, I felt like she gave up and went through something because mom wants to go to Elijah House. Do you hear what I'm saying? So even I... She said, well, Mom, I knew we were supposed to go. I said, I know, but that still does not make it right. You know, would you forgive me? And would you forgive us for not seeing what you were going through? Because she was trying to suppress it so that we could just keep going and finishing Elijah House. What I want to say is that it was a really uh, a time of brokenness. And, and she was broken. And the Lord really restored her. But as parents, we just needed to continue to pray for her, listen to her, let her process through, and just... Be there with encouragement. And it's so amazing that, you know, toward the end of her senior year or even during her senior year, she actually led one of the life groups there with all these white people. <laughs> it's like, you know, she was accepted. She was, you know, she loved it. 
And uh, I, I felt like, you know, she got some healing. But honestly, some things like that just damage our kids and we don't know. And we've got to be on top of it and, and be a part of carrying the burden for them. What about restoring the rebellious child? Let me go up here for a second. The first thing is we need to, uh, we need to address rebellion. Remember when Mark said, when they're younger, address rebellion? Oh, that's what it is. I'm learning how to use my laptop. <laughs> okay, here we go. Address rebellion. And there is a difference between childishness and rebellion. You do not discipline for, for childishness, but you do address it. But address rebellion. Come to an agreement as parents. Clarify expectations and discuss consequences. You know, this is where you negotiate. Okay, you know, this is what we agree on. Also, be cautious. We talked about this, about ultimatum, setting down the law, drawing the line in the sand and saying, don't cross over it, because they will cross over it. And you know what? Here's the thing. That's why I'm so glad we're all together. But seek an advisor or mediator if necessary. You know, some people in the church have said, would you talk to my child? And sometimes their child needs to talk to somebody outside of the family. You know? We are a community, and especially in the church, we're here to help each other. We're, it's not like, well, you know, you just do your own thing. And I mean, when, when some people have gone through difficult times with their children, they've come to us, we've come and talked to the child, we've talked to the parent, we've given some advice. You know, we need to help each other in raising our children. Lastly, convey your love through the trials. And don't blow up the bridge. In other words, don't, don't set ultimatums. Don't, don't do anything that would cause a rift between you and your child. Convey your love through the trials. In summary, believe that God can start today with a few changes. Talk openly. It's never too late to do it right. And most of all, enjoy your child. Enjoy them. You know... God has called each of us to be parents, and it is a privilege to be a parent. It's hard, but we don't, we're not alone in this process. We have the Lord. And even now, even after they become adults, you're still asking God for wisdom. You were asking wisdom when they were little children. You ask wisdom when they're older. Lord, how do I help my adult child? And, you know, just recently, as, as Nicole is processing which grad school to go to, you know, I'm, I hear the process. You know, sometimes you just hear, Mom, you know, I think maybe I was thinking about this or thinking about that. And the other day I was just like, okay, God, <laughs> like, here we go, you know, with more options, you know. I thought we were narrowing down the options, but here we are. And the Lord just said, you know what she needs from you? She, need, she just needs you to sit and listen. She's not really looking for an answer. She just, just listen to what she's saying and, and hear her and and all of a sudden, I could just relax inside and say, oh, you know what? I don't have to figure this out. I just have to listen to her. And so it doesn't matter if they're three years old and they're trying to tell you something or they're 30 and, you know, they're talking to you about a, a, a major decision in life. You know, enjoy your child. And they want to know, and they can feel it, whether you really do enjoy them. You know, so often, barely a day goes by when I would say to Nicole, you're amazing. 
Or yesterday she was singing and I was like, wow, you know? Or I'll, we, I remember uh, Mother's Day two years ago, I was in Portland. We were going on a hike and we were in the car and the girls were in the front. And I usually say, so is any, you interested in anybody? <laughs> you know, checking in, right? Her mom, no, not yet, not yet, okay. Then they sing something, and I said, what, what do you guys think? They said, Mom, why would we need that when the most important man in our life has been telling us that we are beautiful since we were kids? That was, they were talking about Mark. And I realized, they said, do you ever realize that when Dad talks to us, he says, hey, sweetie, on the phone, hey, beautiful. That's the greeting, hey, beautiful. And that, they said, we've been hearing that since we were kids. The most important man in our life has been telling us that. We're not really looking for that. We, you know, yes, we want to get married, but it's not for that sake. And so the thing is, they need to know from us, fathers, your, your daughters need to know that they are the most beautiful daughter and the most beautiful girl, aside from your wife. And, and, and we need to be telling our children, you're beautiful, you're worthy, you're, you're amazing. You know, I'm just so proud of you. Those words are going to go deep into the spirit of the child, and it's going to cause something to rise up that, and to come out and to come forth. And so I want to encourage you to think about that as you talk to your children, you know, as you tell them that you love them every day. And, you know, now that we're on the other end of our kids being grown, I see it now. I see the rewards um, you know, we used to do life group all the time, grab the kids. They go with us everywhere. And we might be going out, to, out of the door at a life group, and somebody needs prayer, so we'd put them down. I remember one time Tara fell asleep right at the front door <laughs> while we were praying for somebody else. But years later, last year, I was at their house, and they said, Mom, tonight we're having life group, so I just want you to know we're going to clean the house, and I need to go to the grocery store. And I'm sitting there watching them prepare for life group. And Tara goes, I need to, I need to like practice because I'm leading worship tonight. And I said, oh my goodness, all those years we took them to life group. They fell asleep while we were praying for someone, and now they're doing it. And so they're watching and we, as you model, you know, and I just want to encourage you that you will see that. You'll see those little glimpses, and you'll say, yes, Lord, thank you. Thank you for guiding me. And it, it, the highest privilege is to be a parent more important than what we do in the world. You know, just a, a testimony, I was, uh, when I first had Tara, I was struggling about staying home, and staying home is not for everybody, but the Lord, I remember being in a meeting, and Tara was seven months, and uh, there was maybe 15 people in the meeting, and we were meeting on one kid, and somebody said in the meeting, you know why the kid's like that? Because their, their parents are always working, and all of a sudden, in my mind, I was like, oh, no, forget this. I'm going home. And I quit my job and went home. And I went home for four years, uh, five years until the, the girls went into school. And, you know, and I told the girls when they were in school, you call me, and even if I'm in a meeting, I will leave. You call me, and you need me, I will come. And I've done that. i got to go, you know, and I would go. And... It's the, it's the highest privilege is to be a parent, to know that you're not just affecting your kids, but guess what? You are affecting your grandkids and your future great-grandkids and generations to follow. And so I encourage you here today
to make a commitment to say, Lord, I want to be the best parent that I can be and I need you because we can't do it, really. We seriously cannot do it on our own, but we need the help and the grace of God. Amen? So let's, yeah, I want to close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your way is the way. Thank you, Father, that you've not hidden the treasures from us, that in your word is all the wisdom that we need. And Father, I thank you for each person here, each father, each mother, that you've called them, Father, to one of the highest privileges is to, be, is to affect the next generation for you. I believe, Father, that what we do now will determine whether the next generation fulfills their destiny. And the Lord gave me a word once, and he said, in our generation, that we would be the one removing the rocks, we would be removing those things in our life that get in the way, so that the next generation could bring in the harvest. And so I feel like the Lord is just saying to all of us that we are to do our part to clear the field, to remove whatever is in the way, the rocks, the thorns, so that the children can just rise up and as we plant that they can bring in the harvest. Father, we thank you that we have everything we need to be the parents you've called us to be. And thank you, Father, that you are the perfect parent, that you have the father heart and you have the mother heart. And so teach us your way, Father. Lord, forgive us for the mistakes we've made. And let there be healing and reconciliation with our children. Let hope rise up in all of us, Lord. Let hope rise up to say, yes, I can be a part of a godly generation. So, Father, would you bless what you've done. Seal it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.